0: old and new, this is the Midwest Football Podcast. Your source for in-depth coverage of the eight NFL teams in the Midwest, the Bears, Bengals, Browns, Colts, Lions, Packers, Steelers, and Vikings, all served with the side of fantasy football. If you listened to our first episode last week, welcome back. We're so honored that you are choosing to spend some of your week with us once again. If this is your first time listening, you picked a great time to join us, and we hope you listen and enjoy our show for many episodes to come. I'm Joe Smith, coming to you from the heart of the Great Lakes. I'm here with my partner, Brian Rosenquist, who's ready and eager to talk about some of the things NFL talent evaluators look for when constructing teams. Brian? Greetings, Midwestlanders and friends. Uh,
1: this is Brian Rosie who's coming from the Dog Pound in San Diego, or San Antonio, sorry. I got my two dogs here. One of them you might be able to hear drinking in the background. Uh, happy week for her. She just got her cone of shame off, which she was saddled with two of the first three weeks that I moved here, which was in the last month.
0: Well, that's, I'm so happy for, uh, for your dog to be able to finally be recovering from the dog park injury. Yeah, um, Thanks. Before we get it to this week's topics, uh, we do want to thank Raymond for our intro and outro music, which he consented to let us use. We used parts of Raymond's song "Running Home" from his debut album "Call to Me." The entire album is available on Spotify, iTunes, Apple Music, and wherever digital music is sold. We also want to thank Chris Brandley. He did the graphic design work for our logos, which was a lot because amazingly, pretty much none of the major social media sites have the same size requirements for images. They look great and we're very thankful to you. If you like our show, please spread the word. Brian and I have been really happy with the response to episode one, and we only plan on getting better as we continue to work together on this pot. We did get our first piece of uh, listener mail from an old friend of mine. If you want to sound off too, send an email to Football Podcast at gmail.com. That was Football Podcast at gmail.com. Seth had given a lot of praise, which I'm not gonna read because it kind of makes me blush. You know, it's one of our one of my oldest friends, but he did have some good ideas for some segments. Like he was thinking things like top 10 lists or the 32 best uniform getup, you know, like a bracket or something like that things to get you guys, our listeners talking and able to uh, comment and help us with the show content. Brian, what do you think of some of these ideas? I love it.
1: It's a great idea. And, um, I think we will work a lot of these ideas into our shows, especially in the dead of summer, uh, In the short term, we got a lot of draft coverage to talk about the next two weeks leading up to the draft, reacting to the draft, and then kind of judging the off seasons as a whole for our eight teams. And then, uh, you know, Seth's ideas might start rolling out into the podcast, as well as many other ideas that you guys might have. Maybe someone wants to comment on uh, the Chargers or something. We don't know.
0: If you want to sound off too, send an email to Midwestfootballpodcast at gmail.com and we might read it and respond on the show. Actually, we probably will respond to everyone who isn't a jerk, at least until we get our numbers up.
1: (laughs) Well said.
0: What was that? Well said. (laughs) Sorry. Brian, we decided in our pre-production meeting this week that we're going to talk draft prep by first examining ways to scout players and build teams that have been successful. We want to look for patterns and figure out what's worked in the past, both in and outside of the Midwest. Not to be too obvious, but there's no more crucial position to get right in the contemporary NFL game than the QB. Brian, why do so many teams get the QB wrong?
1: Well, before we get into the quarterbacks, today is the day we had some breaking news where, uh, Allen Robinson, uh, just got traded for a bag of peanuts from the, uh, former Bowl Rams that he thought he was joining to the uh, Pittsburgh Steelers, one of our teams. And, uh, I'd like to take this time to, uh, give a little ode to the tragic tale of the uh, career of Allen Robinson and uh, starts back. He's back in the state where he played college and he went to Penn state and he played so well. He got, um, what was his name? Hawkinson, Hackinson, Hackenberg, Hackenberg. That was it. Not TJ Hawkinson. Sorry. Tight end of uh, the Vikings. You don't want to get that right, but he got Christian Hackenberg drafted, And I believe the second round to the jets and uh, Hackenberg, responded by playing so poorly alan robinson future all pro didn't even get drafted till the third round and then he got paired with uh, the jacksonville jaguars and blake Bortles, and then he signed a trubisky he jumped on the trubisky train in chicago for years and a lot of people start thinking he might be the greatest receiver ever to play and he's never had a better than bottom three quarterback in the nfl And people were excited. He got to go to the Rams, the Super Bowl champion Rams. Big arm, Matt Stafford's going to take it. Oh, Stafford's arm fell off in the preseason with an elbow injury. And Robinson fell apart. And here we are, traded to Pittsburgh for a seventh-round pick swap. (sighs) You know, a lot of great memories of him in Chicago.
0: Alan Robinson has had – well, he's seemed to alternate good and bad years historically – um based on what's around him and uh whether the quarterback whatever bad quarterback was playing with him was feeling his oats that week but um it's, he's had a couple bad years in a row of course everybody that you've ever heard of had a bad year in LA last year but um it hasn't been great for a while for Allen Robinson
1: so Now that I've talked about the good, and I choose as a Bears fan to remember his first few years in Chicago and how great he was, including how good he was in Jacksonville, but he left Chicago in a very bad spot because that was Fields' rookie year. He finally had a quarterback that might play, and my opinion, and a lot of other Bears fans, it looked like he checked out. He just stopped caring. He wanted out of Chicago. They let him walk. He went to The Rams and it might have been similar, and it's a shame because you know once he finally Fields and Stafford were probably his two best quarterbacks in his career, and those were his two worst years as a pro. And uh, it's a shame, but maybe being traded to Pittsburgh will you know help refocus him and reinvigorate his career. But he's also got age against him now; he's pushing thirty, and uh, the age cliff. So it'll be interesting to see how he goes, but you know. Behind uh, George Pickens and Deontay Johnson, all he's got to do is be the third
0: best. Well, that's exactly the point that I was going to say. At Pittsburgh, he has legitimate competition for targets. Most of his best years, he was the only guy, so he was getting a lot of it in volume from bad quarterbacks. And there's been a lot of bad quarterbacks in not only in Allen Robinson's career, but in all of the NFL. What goes into a bust draft pick at the quarterback position. What are teams looking for that maybe they shouldn't?
1: Well, as a lifelong Bears fan, I don't know what a quarterback bust is. Every quarterback (laughs) we've had has been, the... oh, wait, no, we've never had a good one. Uh, (laughs) Sorry, but uh, I know I was really thinking about this leading up to this draft as I was looking at the quarterbacks in this draft, and there's kind of a big four. And the question is, how are you going to sift your way through to find out the ones that Work and ones that don't so obviously the Trubisky year is a famous one where you had guys in the Trubisky draft and the Fields draft where you had Mitchell Trubisky, Zach Wilson and Trey Lance drafted over guys who were established college stars like Justin Fields, Deshaun Watson to and even to a lesser degree Pat Mahomes had a longer career of sustained success in college than the other three guys that all went ahead of them And it was interesting because when you look back on it, like if you just look at Trubisky versus Deshaun Watson, Watson and even Justin Fields, they had three years where they had elite play at a power conference. They both went to final fours. They both twice, they both went to championship games In Watson's case twice. And he won a championship. And it was crazy to think that those guys wouldn't pan out and slid in the draft for weird reasons. and, I think the Watson was a people thought he had a low pass velocity at the combine, which might've been one of the most insane things I even heard at the time considering he just tore up Ohio state who had three first round draft picks in the defensive backfield alone in the semifinals. And then he beat Alabama who had three more defensive players in the first round of that draft. And then, you know, Justin Fields, anything that all the all the superlatives about Zach Wilson and Trey Lance going to the draft about how strong their arms are, how athletic they were, et cetera, every one of those traits applied to Justin Fields. And the best I can guess is these guys who bust, they were more projection-based. They, they were one-year starters. They hadn't been through a power conference defensive uh, coaching staff to scheme for them a second year. So we don't really – we never got to find out if Trubisky – or Trey Lance could uh, adapt?
0: Well, I'm going to pull an old timer here. And I remember reading a comment years ago from uh, Bill Parcells, who never, ever even considered drafting a quarterback who did not start at least three years. That took a lot of quarterbacks off the board, but it meant that he knew he was going to get a polished product who had a track record of success and was going to at least be able to produce at the NFL level, even if it wasn't going to be the biggest star of the entire draft.
1: Well, I mean, think about this. One of the, I first remember hearing that uh, theory back when he drafted Chad Henney with the Dolphins. And although you're not going to get a lot of people excited talking about Chad Henney, but, the guy was drafted, what, 15 years ago? He just retired last year, uh, winning the Super Bowl with the Chiefs, and he carried them through some playoff moments of the last few years when Mahomes would would be out for a couple stretches. And there's some truth to that, because you want to see the defensive coordinators adapt to the, uh, the, the prospect and then see how the prospect adapts to him. Someone like Pat Mahomes, his career grades got better every year Whereas Trubisky couldn't get on the field until his last year. So even though Mahomes and Trubisky were unknowns of that draft, Mahomes had proven that he could overcome the defensive backs or defensive coordinators scheming him. And even going back to like Sam Darnold, he was considered the number one overall prospect of that draft until the very last draft day. And he had two years as a starter. And people remember how he lit up Penn state in the Rose bowl, but I look back on it, his second year, he was he threw twice as many interceptions and he he took a way big step back, including getting embarrassed in the cotton bowl by Ohio State. I think he threw three or four interceptions that game. He was kind of found out. And he ended up being a high level draft bus too. He went ahead of Josh Allen and uh, Lamar Jackson.
0: In baseball, they talk a lot about the battle to get better. As soon as You prove that you can hit the fastball, then teams start throwing the change up in the slider at you. And then you have to prove you can hit those. And then if you hit the ones that are inside, you have to prove you can hit the ones outside and so on. It sounds like what you're saying is the quarterbacks tend to have the same kind of deal. If they're in college two, three years and they're playing all that time, then opposing defenses can kind of get a beat on what they do well, and they either have to improve their weaknesses or be so good at what they do that it doesn't matter what the colleges try against them.
1: Um, yeah, I, I think there's a lot, and it's not perfect. Um, when I look through Josh Josh Rosen's career, I couldn't really tell. He just had three years as a career starter, and he was pretty solid in all of them. His worst was his sophomore year, and then he got better as a you know junior, and he plateaued he was a weird bust. I couldn't quite explain it, but there are anomalies, everything, but for the most part, when you look back on the last five years draft class, you can kind of tell. And honestly, I'm going to, I'm going to deep dive a little bit onto the uh, comical side on that draft class with Darnold and Rosen, because one thing that going into this year's draft class, it surpri- it, it, it intrigues me is sometimes a prospect just goes from a marginal first dr- round draft pick to number one overall. and, We've seen that twice in the last five years. Last year, Trayvon Walker—he wasn't even considered a first-round draft pick, or who's borderline—and then he vaulted all the way up to number one overall because of the combine. That one's a little easier to uh, track. But back in uh, five years ago, with Baker Mayfield, he was considered a marginal first-round talent. Like I think when people were rumoring that the Browns were going to get him in this, uh, as a quarterback, I was envisioning him going like Drew Brees at the top of the second and then boom, he popped up number one overall. And the debate was, if you want a quarterback, you're taking Darnold. If you want the best player in the draft, you're taking Saquon Barkley. The Browns had the number one and the four pick of that draft. And I remember making the joke in the time that the Browns GM must have only watched Ohio State games because that was the year Baker Mayfield beat Ohio State on the road and danced on the O, which is even funnier that the Browns drafted him because I think a lot of overlap between Buckeyes and Browns fans out there. And then Darnold, he had a terrible game against Ohio state in the cotton bowl and Ohio state held Saquon to two yards of carry when they played Penn state. And then their other pick in their fourth overall was Denzel Ward, another Buckeye. Great. He panned out pretty well, but it was just kind of funny that if you only scouted based on Ohio state, that's exactly what you would have done.
0: When it's not your team, a bad quarterback draft is unintentional comedy for everybody to enjoy. It kind of sounds like, sort of apply it to this class, the tape should trump all. So if you're not seeing it happen on tape at all, like, say, uh, Richardson's throwing ability, then maybe that should be a red flag.
1: So, yeah, you might see where I'm standing. I feel like Richardson kind of matches the uh, profile of the bus, the guys who were drafted for the tools and didn't really produce. And I would just – it's just too risky. The guys like Stroud and uh, Young just seem to have a much better floor to what they can do. Um, We've seen it. Um, Great, great uh, article on PFF to check out. It's on the stable metrics. And Stroud and uh, Young really stand out they're way above and beyond everybody else in this draft class. And that's why they were 1A and 1B. And if you take out the combine where, you know, you got Levis's arm strength and, uh, you know, Richardson's ability to be a running back and jump high and stuff, it, it, it's it's pretty obvious that those guys are the 1 and 2. But people fall in love with projections. And you can pro- it's easy to project that Anthony Richardson has the highest ceiling. He can be better than Cam Newton is what I hear. Lamar Jackson mixed with Cam Newton but what also was interesting too is you also got the next guys like Hendon Hooker and stuff and finding the second round guy that might pan out like just let's do a little pivot to uh some more breaking news this week uh Jalen Hurts was a second round pick in what might be the best draft class in recent history where you had Joe Burrow, Justin Herbert, uh, Tua and Hurts; those are the top four draft picks, and I don't think e- any of them were bust outside of the concussions for Tua.
0: Nope, just Jeff Okuda.
1: <laughs> oh yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah. Well, you know, when he converts to quarterback, maybe they'll salvage his career in uh, Atlanta. <laughs> <laughs> Jalen Hurts went from being benched in Alabama in the national championship, famously to now signing the highest paid per year average salary of any player in NFL history. So congratulations to Jalen Hurts. You are getting an average of $51 million a year over five years. Congratulations. And what I find interesting about this is we kind of talked about player contracts last week a little bit because of Lamar Jackson, you know, Burrow, and uh, Justin Herbert are now due. And I kind of commented, the sooner you find them, the better, because they kind of one up each other. And remember back when Pat Mahomes signed that half a billion dollar contract and people went crazy going, you're never going to compete when you have that much of your cap space dedicated to one player. Well, currently, Pat Mahomes is the reigning Super Bowl champion after that contract. Now, granted, the dead cap space, maybe not as hit it, but I want to point out after the Hertz contract, Mahomes is not even a top five played player per year. And I guarantee you when Herbert and Burrow sign their contracts, Mahomes might not even be a top 10 quarterback in pay come this year when we start. It's the best player in the football league right now. That's a pretty big bargain. So pays to pay your guys, lock them down.
0: That's true. But we are also seeing teams getting a whole lot better at massaging that cap. Um, Track is a website that is the industry standard for keeping track of salary cap and cap hits and all that stuff. They do a lot of great work. That's where a lot of media journalists go for that kind of information. And what you see are wildly differing cap hits based on the technicalities of the contract structure. Even I don't understand. So last year, Patrick Mahomes became the first quarterback ever in the history of the NFL to win the Super Bowl with a cap hit over $32 million. But within three, four or five years, that cap hits going to go up to 50, $60 million and then come right back down so that you're seeing a lot more of that is, is cap hits that'll spike wildly for a year or two, uh, which, Pretty much means that it's a contract up until that time, and then they renegotiate in such a way to massage that cap hit over a longer period of time, or they just up and cut them, take the dead cap hit, and be done with it.
1: I'm just thinking about how the Saints have basically gone from uh, being 50 million over the cap coming into every offseason to signing big name free name agents by the time the, the draft hit. <laughs> and, I don't know how they work it. I'm not a GM or a cap guy, but those guys, earn their money. I'll tell you that, especially in New Orleans.
0: Every team has – it might be the general manager, especially if the general manager is not the main player chooser, but everybody's got the guy whose only job is to massage the cap. Usually they're also the team's lead negotiator. And, yeah, you are right. Those guys are the reason that – teams can pay people and stay up top all the time.
1: But it's even easier than massaging the cap if you just have a high-performing quarterback on a rookie contract. And that's why a lot of the draft conversation you're going to have is about the big, big four con- rookies. Because right now, you have like guys like Joe Burrow and, and Justin Fields performing really well, and they're getting paid, or not getting paid yet, but you can put a really good team around them. And do you remember how many teams have won the Super Bowl with a rookie contract quarterback? I think even technically Mahomes, his cap hit was still on the rookie contract this year. It might have been a year beyond it, but I think it was still kind of low. No, no, Um,
0: no. Uh, His first one was absolutely rookie contract. His second year was after he got paid, but they're still ramping up the cap hit. So his cap hit is nowhere near what his actual annual salary is. That's what it
1: was. The cap hit hadn't come full tilt but yeah it was still like 30 million it wasn't 50 or 60 million right and then like
0: you know a lot of people in
1: Seattle think that um you know their Super Bowl runs ended when they paid Russell Wilson you know because they won the Super Bowl and went to the Super Bowl with him on a rookie contract and I believe if you look back on it if you add in Mahomes now most of the Super Bowls have been won by Brady or Brady Peyton Manning or a rookie contract quarterback in the last 20 years
0: Yeah, I went kind of in depth on this and I'm not going to bore everybody with the entire list of details. But when it comes to building a team, there are effectively only three paths for what happens with a quarterback. The holy grail is to get a big time quarterback on a rookie deal. That happens a couple times in each generation. Joe Burrow right now. But his time is running up, Justin Fields right now, but the rest of the team isn't ready, and they're gonna probably miss that window before they have to decide if they're gonna pay Justin Fields or what's going on.
1: Hey, we got three more years of his rookie contract, and we're, we're we got you know our window championships probably next year, maybe not this year, but go on,
0: still got a chance. Granted, <laughs> um, the other side of that is your Patrick Mahomes. He, pay these guys, whatever, because if you don't, they're going to, the negotiation is with a Patrick Mahomes. They're going to put a number on the table and you're either going to pay them every penny or you're going to kiss them goodbye because somebody else will. That's the negotiation. But if they're that good, you pay it because that's all you need. I, uh, You go back to your Peyton Manning's, your Tom Brady's, Today, you're Patrick Mahomes. Basically, if you get him just enough offensive line to keep him upright, and one receiver that can consistently beat single coverage, you're going to be a top 10 offense. That's all you need. Everybody else can be replacement level.
1: And you can even say, like, Drew Brees had a... He might have been really paid. He always maxed out. He didn't take that Brady discount, but they had that one draft class with Kamara and Marshawn Latimer where they had this second run at the end of Drew Brees' career where they didn't win a Super Bowl, but If you go back year by year, they had weird, tragic losses in the playoffs and any Saints fan could rattle them off. I can't. But I mean, that they probably could have won one of those. You know, they could have stolen one of those, you know, because if you have a quarterback who's that elite, now you just need to hit on a couple rookies. Because if you can't hit on one quarterback on a rookie contract, you got to hit on multiple players in a rookie contract. And, you know, you could see it. I mean, even like with Mahomes, the power of him, they traded. Tyreek Hill and you wouldn't want to start any of those receivers in fantasy last year. And their offense was better.
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's, you end up with this sort of sliding scale though, because you can hit it somewhere in the middle. There's, uh, you know, I, I think of it like threading the needle. It's a value vet. If you can get top 10 quarterback production from a guy who's making say for the sake of example, cap hit of 25 million or less, you're going to have some success because you're going to have enough support around him. That's really the key. You're going to if the best way that I've seen to evaluate quarterbacks doesn't have anything to do with their statistics. It has to do with how much support they need both around them on the offense, uh, as well as on the defensive side. So they're not throwing from behind how much support they need to be a plus quarterback.
1: Yeah, and um that brings me to, like the mid tier. And this is a good year for that because you have some people scrambling for the rookie contracts, others scrambling to pay, like, you know, trade for and pay Deshaun Watson. But then you got the middle of the pack, guys. Someone asked might ask me, who do you would you rather have? Daniel Jones, um, Kirk Cousins, Derek Carr, Jared Goff. And my answer is just who's paid the least of those guys? Because if you got golf on what 25 million versus you know Carr and Daniel Jones on 40, you can you can, you can pay two extra you know Pro Bowl players to uh round out your roster and make their job a lot easier. And I, I just don't think that the difference between those guys is enough to justify paying it. it, it you're not going to get to the Super Bowl, you can. We've seen it with golf, another rookie contract guy, and um, that's why I think that the, the Lions this year are in good shape because. Guys like Geno Smith and golf are still on reasonable mid-market contracts compared to the, the Matt Stafford's and, and Dak Prescott's and Daniel Jones.
0: That Daniel Jones contract is going to send shockwaves through the NFL because there's probably 25 starting quarterbacks that are going to turn around, point to that deal, and go, I'm better than Daniel Jones. So if he's $40 million, then I'm 45 at least.
1: And Daniel Jones is another one of those fascinating guys that he vaulted to the top of his draft class. And he was one of those borderline first round picks. He ended up going top six. He didn't even really pan out as a rookie and he still got paid $40 million a year. And it just kind of goes to show how desperate teams are for quarterback plays, even if it's just competent. And the Daniel Jones truthers will point out like fields, he didn't have a receiving core, but you're paying him $35 million more than Fields. So now you're not getting a DJ more. You're not getting a left tackle to help keep him upright and give him weapons. So where do you get the weapons if you're you know, a Giants team that's trying to win with uh, Daniel Jones, who's a you know, su- subpar quarterback play but over average pay scale, not to say he's overrated.
0: Yeah, as a Lions fan, this is what absolutely terrifies me. We've got Jared Goff locked up for this year and next year. But if Jared Goff balls out again, he's going to want to get paid ahead of Daniel Jones for sure. He's going to want that $45 million plus deal. So what is a championship window? A championship window is one of these three quarterbacks plus enough dudes that they can get that guy to play at a super bowl level. It looks like the Lions are entering a championship window this year and it might end the instant they have to pay golf.
1: Which is crazy because it feels like the Giants or the Lions have been they've been on a great trajectory the last couple years going from second overall pick to 9 and 8 and I think they've had a lot of things going for them, but I especially, I agree with you a hundred percent. And I think we can talk about this next week when we go through what we want to see in a draft, because there's a big question in Detroit is do you grab a rookie contract quarterback to take over for golf with your two first round picks or not? We don't have time for that this week, but I think we can dive into that in, in immense detail next week. Golf is a really good, he's a really good litmus test for what we're talking about. And I think your championship window for uh Detroit's there. You have a really cheap wide receiver core and uh, your defense is coming around. You've got a great line, great running backs.
0: To wrap this up with what we're talking about quarterback strategies here, this, I do want to say, is a major change from historical team building, where if you go back 15 years or even less than that, the quarterback was usually the first building block as the one with the highest positional value. And that's fair. If you get a franchise guy, your championship window is his career, or at least his prime. But a lot of teams are seeing ways around getting a top two or three quarterback. And then it becomes, you want to time your championship window so that it starts at about the quarterback's second year.
1: Yep. And it's it's the case that in Chicago, they made for uh, a lot of people were saying trade Justin Fields and draft a quarterback at number one overall, because you're resetting your rookie contract back two years. My case against that is if you can't put together a championship team in the next two years in Chicago, that GM and coach is probably getting shown the door anyways, but you're absolutely right. <laughs> you got to build that offensive line and pass catchers. And then you airdrop that rookie quarterback into a position where he can
0: succeed. Exactly. Um, Figuring that if you're not going to have a top three quarterback, if you can great, but if you're not going to have it, then that quarterback's going to need a lot of help, especially early in their career. And that's why teams have been running to the top of the draft to grab these quarterbacks on the hope that they can get one, you know, that's going to be a top three quarterback and on a rookie deal. That's why we've got what we think is going to be a schmoz at the top for quarterbacks. We could have four quarterbacks go in the top six, seven, eight picks, but we can contrast that with other positions like teams have almost fled from running backs on draft day, especially in the first round. Would you like to elaborate on why that is?
1: Yeah, that's a a new paradox. I mean, I think it's going to be interesting to see what happens with Bijan Robinson, because that's a kind of a big um, lightning rod about the debate between analytics and old school, because when we were kids, it was all about give the ball to Walter Payton and uh, Emmett Smith and scary Barry and build your team around the running game. And now running backs are kind of seen as two down thumpers telegraph the offense. So if you are going to have a running back of value, he's got to be a pass catcher like uh, Alvin Kamara or Christian McCaffrey or Saquon. It's interesting because they have a short lifespan. I mean, we're seeing Tom Brady retire at 45. We're seeing Aaron Rodgers play until 40. But running backs kind of fall off a cliff at age 27. There's a lot of people who don't even want to pay him a second contract. So when you get a running back on on a rookie deal, they're cheap, and they might not even get paid, you know?
0: 27 is the new 30, after all. If you do draft a running back first round, you got them for basically five years. You can franchise them twice, and then their career is over.
1: Yeah, exactly. And looking back on it, I mean, I remember there always being first-round picks, uh, running backs in the first round, people getting excited. And I see a lot of people say, like, the Bears should draft him number six, uh, Bichon number six, the Eagles should take him number 10, and just Dallas should replace Zeke with him despite having Pollard. And just all these people get excited. And there's never been a bigger gap between – nfl franchises the way they look at running back in fantasy football where running backs are more valuable than ever because when you get a running back like austin eckler or derrick henry or mccaffrey it's a huge advantage in fantasy football but in real football nfl football they don't want to pay these guys and we didn't even Brees hall was a great prospect last year he didn't even crack the first round and then you go back two years you had Najee and um Etn and a lot of people were mad that Steelers picked Najee in the first round because they did, they had, you know, there was the last year of Roethlisberger, and now your uh, running back is a year older than your quarterback, or at least draft age wise. I think he's actually even older. And then um the year before that, you had a, a plethora of running backs that were drafted at the top of the second, like J.K. Dobbins, Jonathan Taylor. The only first rounder was Clyde Edwards Alaire, who was the last pick of the first round, which is barely a first rounder. And I can't even remember who was the last top 10 pick. Was it Saquon? That was a loaded draft class six years ago. And, you know, it's interesting because even now we have this loaded draft class in rookies, um, you know, behind Bijan, you got Gibbs and Charbonnet, et cetera. And at the same time, you have this great rook, rookie, former class with like Aaron Jones, Kamara, Dalvin Cook, Mixon, and you're hearing rumors – I'm hearing rumors that you know J- Aaron Jones took a pay cut to stay with Green Bay, and they're probably going to trade their quarterback. Uh, you've got Mixon and Dalvin Cook on the trade block. Eckler wants to be traded. There's rumors that they might trade Derrick Henry. Uh, Zeke is still available as a free agent. Same with Leonard Fournette. Uh, Kareem Hunt hasn't been signed. I mean, this is insane. If you go back and look at the last couple of years of fantasy rip, uh, studs, this is a laundry list of them, and nobody wants them. They're all available through trade or free agency, and we're waiting to see what happens with the draft because it's just – it's it's this weird paradox where there's too much value now, but they also – there's too many good running backs, but they also have depressed the running back value. And I think it's never been seen more, than If you go back to Le'Veon Bell when he held out, I think his – his uh franchise tag was like 15 16 million for one year josh jacobs saquon and uh pollard were offered 10 million and i believe that the uh, franchise tag is something to do with the average of like the top five paid players at their position so it's a weird thing with this hyper you know high level inflation we're seeing in america but the running backs values you know their their their, uh salaries are going down
0: and the uh, the uh the thought process seems to be that no matter how late you draft a running back there's another good one coming along later but there's a reality check to that too if you if you have go beyond the analytics you have to think that there's a long term value that is going to be a little higher in the earlier round running backs like when Ezekiel was drafted he lasted many many years you yes there were later running backs taken that were uh, good for a while. Jordan Howard comes to mind for your bears, but. Bears. But um, it was Ezekiel Elliott that had the huge numbers. There really was a significant difference between Ezekiel Elliott and Jordan Howard that made Zeke a much higher level prospect.
1: And I'm glad you pointed that out because that was a great draft class where people were arguing, don't take Zeke number four because you can take Jordan Howard in the fifth round. Well, a few years in Jordan Howard was already replaced because he was never more than a two down back. He would telegraph what the defense was uh, telegraph what the offense was going to do to the defense. And he was out of Chicago within three years. Zeke had another four or five years until his body broke down. Cause he had so many, you know, carries and, that's what you got to find is Zeke can pass protect and he can run and he can catch the ball. Running back is more than ever. It's, it's a harder set than it used to be. It used to be just get the ball, run up the middle, find the hole. Now you have to be a Now coaches like guys that can uh, pass protect, even if they don't, I'm going to, they aren't asked to pass protect a lot. They want to have someone on the field that gives the threat of pass, even if they intend to run the ball. And I think that, the Zeke and Jordan Howard debate ultimately came back to Zeke had a lot more value than Jordan Howard in the long run. And I think you could justify that pick. And I think you could also justify Jordan Howard in the you know fifth round. He, they got, he's got good value out of him. And I think when the draft comes around, that's what you're going to look for. Can you have a all around three down back? If not, you fill out your, you know, your draft set based on needs, you know, and you can get role players on the cheap. And I think that's what you're going to want to see a lot of um, teams do as you get later in the draft. And it's more about styles. Are they speed guys?
0: Exactly. Yeah. You look at the NFL's copycat league. You look at what the chiefs and Eagles did in the super bowl this year, and neither one of them invested heavily in the running back position Instead, it's the grab bag of, you know, four or five guys each making less than what uh, David Montgomery will make himself. You got this one's for dashing and this one's for smashing and this one's for catching and this one's for blocking. And there's another one that I don't even know what he's for, (laughs) but we're going to have him anyway, just to make sure the other guys don't get too much burn. And you're telegraphing what you're doing, but as long, but, you know, a lot of these teams are. The running backs are effectively decoys anyway because they're throwing it 65, 70% of the time.
1: Going back to what the quarterback's talking about, the new, to changing in the paradigm is you want to get a quarterback when you have a semi ready to compete team because you don't want to waste his rookie contract. I think then you want to add the running back afterwards when you're already competing. That's why, even though Clyde Edwards Alaire is arguably a bust, it was a smart pickup by the Chiefs because they had a good ready made team. And if you could get an electric, Or if you could get Saquon, if you can get Bijan, if you can get Brees.
0: Yeah, that also might be why the Vikings did Madison on a two-year deal. They figure they're going to let Cousins walk. They're going to probably get a quarterback either this year or next year, and then they can draft the running back to replace Madison if they feel like they need to the year thereafter. I like that concept.
1: We've always heard the term "bridge quarterback" on a two-year deal. Now we got a bridge running back for uh, <laughs> the, the next rookie quarterback in uh, Minnesota. That's an interesting con- point, but I think that that's fair. He's good, and they am on two years. You know, they could transition, and right. that's why I think that if you are going to be drafting like a Gibbs or a Bijan in the first round this year, you want it to be a Cincinnati, a Kansas City, Philadelphia, Buffalo. These teams are ready made to compete now and supercharging the offense with a uh, running back could really take them to the next level. And I think that's where it's defensible to draft a quarter uh, running back high.
0: And yeah, if it's going to be the piece that puts you over the top, there really aren't a whole lot of guys in the elite tier in this draft class. By all accounts, Bijan is one of them. So If you've got a running back that's one of the top 5-10 prospects, even though the analytics guys are saying the running back doesn't matter or doesn't matter much, it's all about the offensive line, that's the Bijan paradox. Mm -hmm.
1: I mean, I've seen people say the blue chippers in the draft class are a couple quarterbacks, a couple defensive linemen, and Bijan Robinson. Well, every one of these people who says that has those two linemen and quarterbacks in the top five. But Bijan, they could have him eight. They could have him in the second round. We, we don't know because the, 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 the positional value of the running backs has been so depressed lately. And I think it's overly depressed in my opinion.
0: I'm right with you there. This is a topic that really tends to divide fans, The, the fantasy football players especially want to have that dominant piece, the analytics guys are saying it doesn't matter at all and you got a whole lot of people just standing on the sideline holding a picket fence sign and a torch saying don't pay running backs, don't pay running backs, when in reality in football, the ultimate team sport it's never really that simple. If you want to let us know your opinion, uh, email us at Podcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. But we're going to move to a different position that's rapidly changing how it's evaluated and viewed right now, the wide receiver position. Historically, there have been some pretty frightening bust rates for first and second round receivers. Have teams, Brian, been looking at the wrong traits?
1: Well, yes. And also not Yes. I, uh, that was a weird sentence. It sounded better in my head before I started talking. But <laughs> in my opinion, there everyone's trying to find the next Megatron or DeAndre Hopkins, where it's the 6'4 guy with a four three forty that can do everything, like Larry Fitzgerald, contested catch guys. They love the highlight catches. Oh, look how look at that touchdown catch with the defensive back draped over him.
0: Yeah, Od- Odell Beckham Jr. has basically made a career off of one spectacular catch.
1: Still, one of the most famous quarter or running uh, receivers in the league because all the kids watched him make that one handed catch. I believe it was on Monday night, and people still have him as one of the best receivers in the league, even though he didn't even play last year. So, that is it, it's that contested catch highlight reel ESPN Sports Center top 10 that people want. They go out of their way to go after these guys. What I find interesting is you're kind of – the last couple years, you're kind of seeing a higher hit rate because for all the busts that the New England Patriots have drafted under Bill Belichick, I hate to give him props because a lot of people don't like him, learning how to pick a undersized, quick, shifty guy and stick him in the slot like Wes Welker and Danny Amendola has really changed the way some people are thinking about it. People are starting to realize.
0: Yeah, Julian Edelman.
1: Oh, Edelman, that was the bigger one. than uh, uh, That's what I was thinking. But they did have Ad- Ad- Amandola at that one point, but he wasn't nearly as good. Yeah, yeah. And <laughs> so many, so many slot guys they had on that team that were good. And you're starting to realize people go, wait a minute. Instead of having that big contested catch monster that runs a good 40 – or just a guy who runs a good 40, like see every Raiders first round receiver in the last 20 years, you know, Darius (laughs) Bay and um, Henry rugs, et cetera. Um, You know,
0: I swear the only line on the Raiders scouting report during the last few years of Al Davis was fast, really fast or speedy.
1: (laughs) I believe that, you know, based on what they did, like you could predict it. Like, Even the Henry Ruggs draft, I mean, he was a fast guy, but he was not rated higher than CeeDee Lamb or uh, Judy, but he still went above them easily. And you could predict it. You go, oh, the Raiders are picking ahead. Oh, there you go. Who's in the Grease grease Lightning tier? (laughs) Exactly. The (laughs) Cowboys couldn't have been happier to get CeeDee Lamb turn that pick in, you know? And uh, it's worked out pretty well. Oh, also Justin Jefferson was in that class. And that brings me to the next trait. Jefferson, like Amon Ross St. Brown, the sun god, both fell. Obviously, sun god was a fourth rounder. You know, Jefferson was still first, but they had that label where they were slot-only guys, except they were just guys who get open. They have great hands. They're technical route runners. And guess what? You don't need to make a highlight catch if you're wide open.
0: <laughs> exactly. Um, I've been looking a lot at wide receivers lately, and I've noticed that Most of the best receivers, not just now, but in the past, uh, have success running multiple different types of routes and getting open in different parts of the field. You can be an NFL receiver if you're a super, say, catch and run guy. But it's better if you also have the size to go with that speed that you can also run the deep routes. Amon Ross St. Brown has been so successful because he can be that short route contested catch dude that just, you know, wants to he acts like he's in a knife fight with the with the defensive back every single time he catches the ball, but he can also just get wide the heck open because he's such a great route runner. And the, you know historically those intermediate routes are the ones that really get you uh, those high volume catches, you know high value. Uh, that made you the big time receivers historically. So if you send out Amon Ra, you don't know, is he running the short route where you're going to have to you know, go eight rounds just to get the ball? Or is he going to go on a 15 yard out and make you look sick?
1: Mm-hmm. Exactly. And another shift that we've seen recently that's interesting is as the teams get smaller and value passing more, you're getting smaller and smaller receivers. Like D- Devontae Smith was what, 160 or something, 165? He he didn't even fake it. Like he just said at the combine, hey, this is what I am. I won the Heisman at this weight. Draft me or don't. He went, what, top t- 10, top 11? I think he went one spick ahead of Fields. I remember uh, the Eagles trading ahead of Chicago for that. Well, not ahead of Chicago at the time. I think ahead of uh, New York. But, and he he worked out really well. And I think because of that, it's a copycat league. You're going to see a lot of small receivers draft in this class. And it's a perfect time to see this litmus test. I think four of the top, you know, six to 10 prospects are all smaller than 180 pounds. And the question is, can they use their hands and get off a stacked t- defense uh, uh running back or cornerback like uh Devante does?
0: That's a really good point because you've got a smaller wide receiver you've also got a smaller quarterback and both of them are built like sherman tanks so (laughs) they're able to get open they're able to move piles they're able to survive the hits uh but even if you've got a multi-route receiver in that tiny package are they if you can nullify them just by running out a 6-2 corner to mug him at the line of scrimmage that's gonna wipe out any draft benefit for that kind of receiver but some of them will be able to beat it and some of them won't
1: and I think even Devonte Smith I think that's why he was so inconsistent as a rookies he he wasn't he didn't always get off the line clean in some games against some matchups and even guys like someone like Andy Isabella for the uh Cardinals that might be a deep pull for a lot of people he was a highly drafted I think it was a second rounder and a the people thought he might have been the best receiver in that class speed burner but he was very slight and he could never get off press coverage and his career just never took off. And you're going to see a lot of these guys like, you know, Zay Flowers and, and Josh Downs and Jordan Addison in this year's draft class are going to be somewhere between Devonte Smith and successful and great pickups, or they might be complete busts if they can't have the size to get off the line. And I think that's what makes this class interesting because outside of Jackson and Smith and Jigba, you have a couple big guys that maybe aren't great at contested catches, and then you have a bunch of little guys. And it's an interesting draft class to break down. You know, when we talk about who's going to be good fits for next week, and uh, this will be a very it'll be a very interesting one.
0: It'll be interesting to see where these guys, how these guys fit into cores, because you look at we talked a little bit last week about Cleveland. And how they're building a core of receivers that are good at different things. You've got the classic, you know, stud receiver in Amari Cooper, who's best at those sort of intermediate, you know, route runner type routes, but he's got the physical tools that he can go deep. You've got uh, Donovan Peoples-Jones, who's a pure deep threat, and which means if that's all he does, he'll never be a big target guy. But what he does is, is more important on the football field than on the fantasy sports. You've got a true slot receiver now, which might do a lot of catch and run, might do a lot of contested catch, might do the occasional intermediate. You've got to cover all three levels of the defense against Cleveland, and that's uh, going to help out Deshaun Watson and the running game a ton.
1: And on a similar note, I think you got a really good and interesting rounded out class for Detroit because, you know, we talked about Sun God and how good he is at running intermediate and short routes and he's a route technician. And I love the Jamison Williams pick from them last year to uh, to a compliment is set because worst case scenario, Jamison Williams can fly and he is going to stretch the defense. He's going to blow the safeties off the top, and he's going to give St. Brown more room to work in the intermediate routes. Best case scenario, he's just the best player receiver in the draft, and he can run every route, and now you just got two really good guys. And what's interesting is the Cleveland and Detroit might be targeting a completely different type of receiver in this year's draft.
0: Yeah, Jamison Williams, if he – does As long as he's got any hands at all, mm-hmm. he can be a catch-and-run guy and a deep threat guy, Great. both. If he can also run routes, look out, because he might be Tyreek Hill or possibly better. Yep. Um, he's got those kinds of tool set, and that's why you get guys. The secondary support receivers are guys like Josh Reynolds, who is that intermediate guy with the speed to go deep. That's exactly the kind of third receiver they want. It's also why they could move on from uh, TJ Hawkinson, because he was a slot-type, catch-type tight end who's going to do the contested catches in the short and some of the intermediate stuff as a secondary. What does he give you that you don't already get from Amon Ross St. Brown?
1: And what I like about that receiver core is you don't have a traditional X that everybody wants, but it's still effective. And I think that's why in this year's class, they can wait on the receivers because you can get someone like a Cedric Wilson um, in the middle rounds, who's quote unquote size wise is a traditional X, but maybe not talent wise, but he can come in as the third receiver. And you kick St. Brown into the slot where he can just terrorize this, you know, nickelbacks and linebackers. And but still hold his own on the outside. You can get guys like that. You don't have to swing for the DeAndre Hopkins. Although you could also just trade for him. Apparently he's on the block.
0: Right. Um, this is yeah, there's a ton of receivers. They're starting to the value is starting to depress a little bit too, if you don't have the elite measurables, just because there's so many great receivers with so many high-powered passing offenses in college, like the running backs, it feels like you can get somebody that can at least contribute even in the mid to late rounds. Uh, If you've got an opinion on this, let us know at Podcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you as we go into our deeper, more uh, individual player coverage and team coverage next week. But let's talk a little bit about the offensive line. We're running a little short on time, so we're not going to do a gigantic segment here. But, uh, let's break down the the class in a general way what is what does the offensive line prospects look like this year?
1: Well, this one's interesting because you have a few tackles um that are probably going in the top in the first round, maybe five, and a lot of them are kind of more right tackles. You got Skoronsky who they might kick in as a guard more um but the real value in this year's class, I think, is in the centers where there's three centers of the big ten the Minnesota, Wisconsin, and Ohio State. And I think you can find some real positional value in the middle of the draft this year, where you normally, you can't always do that. And I think even in
0: the. Okay. The Steelers live with the positional value in the middle rounds. So, uh, and really so do a lot of well-run franchises. This is how they get their value with their middle round picks. I was, I had posted in our, on our Facebook page, about the players that the lions could have had in the jeff okuda draft and the t- names that kept coming up for the teams that drafted quality guys were the steelers the ravens you know all those tough guys that the positional value isn't where you want to be but they're going so late in drafts that that's actually where the value is
1: yeah and i think that this is a good, good chance to continue doing it. You know, if you don't, if you strike out on the tackles in the first round, no need to panic, just boost the interior of that line, keep the quarterbacks uh, on a spot, you know?
0: Exactly. Um, I feel like as you're building a team, it's always really helpful to draft offensive line. I've always been a big offensive line guy because you need to have a quality unit in order for it to make any difference at all. But if you do, it makes everyone better. Plus the fact that other, other than your left tackle, they're not really premier pay positions, So you can get pretty good uh, bang for your buck there from a salary cap perspective. So it's not a hard and fast rule, but I like to see a team go quarterback until they know they have one, offensive line somewhere in the first three rounds every year if you need it or not, defense somewhere in the first in one of your first two picks whether you need it or not because you got to keep developing those and you got to get off ramp so you don't have to pay everybody on your team that's halfway any good
1: and i think that's a good point you ramp the defense i think uh I- i'd be very boring as a gm i would just throw tons of resources at the defensive line i think you can go eight deep and it doesn't hurt because Deep, team, teams wear down the second half because it's not just because they get tired it's also because offensive line get used to seeing the same moves over and over again so if you can throw different style defensive ends and tackles at these guys it keeps them guessing it makes it takes longer for them to to adapt to the pass rush and we're seeing in the, you know, Tom Brady era, the way to get to him was to get him off his spot. Don't let him step up like an Aaron Donald rushing up the middle. And I think that's why outside of, you know, the top prospect in the draft is uh, Will Anderson defensive end. But after that, I think the two best guys that I would like to see fall to number nine at Chicago would be obviously Jalen Carter, who had his alleged off field issues, but it sounds like those might be resolved. So he might not be falling anymore but he can get pressure up the middle. And the other guy was uh, the pit defense attack with Kalaja Kansi. He can shoot the gap. He might be yeah. a little small, but I don't mind that because you need him on third down. You don't necessarily need to put him out there to stop the run. You find you can find a big defensive tackle run stuff or anywhere, late in the draft, bargain on free agency. I believe the Bears got two of them this year, You know, adults in the room that can slow a run. If you bring in Clyde Jakansi, he can rush the passer up the middle and really be a disruptor. And that's why those two defensive tackles are huge because afterwards it drops off to run
0: stuffers. Just look at the success that the Eagles had on the, the butt push play, and you know that you got to have somebody you can throw into the middle of that defensive line when you – and everybody else in the stadium knows that the run is coming.
1: And that's why even then I don't want to shortchange the big boys, the big, big boys, because they can be on third down and one or goal line situations. And you might want to run out three defensive tackles in these situations, you know? And then in other situations, you might want to kick out four pass rushers, like the, the Giants in the 07 Super Bowl, where they would just kick their defensive ends into the you know, into tackles and just blitz the gaps and bring in two more pass rushers. This year with the outside, you know, edge rush outside of will anderson there's a lot of good players but it's a lot of depth because you have the small guys you, you're seeing more and more undersized pass rushers 240 pound guys with bend that can get after a quarterback because you don't need your defensive ends to play third down, uh, three downs every time in fact it's almost dumb because they wear down. out you you want to have a diverse set of skill sets when it comes to your defensive end and your defensive uh, tackles and to me that's why it's more valuable than it ever used to be and a similar cornerbacks are like that where you might be running out three or four cornerbacks as your base set just because so many people run three and four receiver sets which also make linebackers less valuable in general because you don't see them as much but even the linebackers that do play it takes them longer to develop because they're no longer a c-ball hit ball type guy that they were 20 years ago that's primary job was to run stuff now their job, like a Fred Warner or Luke Keekley, they have to get the whole defense on the same page. They got crossing routes. They got jet sweeps. They got motion. They got guys coming all the way across. And they still have to honor the, you know, the run gap assignments. And to me, even though linebackers have been devalued the way running backs are, I think the top linebackers are more valuable than ever, like Fred Warner for the Niners.
0: I'd agree with you there. I mean – At the end of the day, you still need somebody to be the supercomputer to run your defense. And that person is still almost always the middle linebacker. The teams that are getting confused are usually the ones that don't have one of those really great runback linebackers to keep everybody sort of organized as the quarterback of the defense.
1: And, you know, we talked about, you know, the skill set diversity of receivers and how you can find more and more uses for them. It also makes more cornerbacks useful because you can have little slot guys that match up with, you know, like guys like Julian Edelman. You can have the big traditional peanut Tillman type guys, you know, like the Legion of Boom in Seattle had the big six foot three cornerbacks that could match up with DeAndre Hopkins, like Jalen Ramsey and stuff. And I know he wasn't Seattle. I just kind of. Yeah,
0: that was when the national defense of the NFL was bad cover two man press. That's
1: true. Yeah, exactly. And then they went more cover three, but, you know, but it's still good to have multiple cornerbacks that you can count on to match up with different receivers, whether you're in the zone or man to man, you want to at least let them think you can go man to man and then maybe switch it up. But when you do go man to man, you want to be able to match up. You don't want to just have a, a point guard guarding a power forward out, you know, out there and just letting a tight end post up on your little guy in the red zone. It's all that makes it more important because the better your defense is and the deeper it is, you ask less on your rookie contract quarterback when you're trying to compete for a Super Bowl.
0: Right. The nice thing about the defensive line is they're usually ready to contribute, if not right away, then by the end of their first year. So they match up nicely with the uh, championship window that a team is trying to develop. A cornerback or a One of those supercomputer linebackers, they're going to need some time because they're going to have to figure out how to read a route tree and they have to have the physical tools to be able to do everything that they need. The mental tools to be able to not single-handedly get called for 17 pass interferences in a row or be the guy that's chasing the play five steps behind. But, yeah, the defense is a hugely important part of the puzzle because if you've got a bad defense, then you better be a top three to five offense or you have no chance when you start playing the big boys in the playoffs.
1: Hey, let's be honest, though. From a fantasy football perspective, we want our uh, quarterbacks and receivers to be on teams with bad defense. Just keep them slinging, you know, keep them hiling up the fantasy points. But as a fan, it's a little stressful.
0: A little bit. yeah. In most traditional leagues, yeah. I like playing in leagues where turnovers count a lot against you, and that sort of normalizes the the kind of quarterbacks that you want, because you don't necessarily want the guy that's going to throw 600 times if he's also going to pop 20-plus interceptions and have weeks that he single-handedly kills you with a couple of minus threes or something. We're going to have to leave our draft coverage there for this week, though, and head to the locker room until episode three. Thank you again for all of our listeners. Uh, We really appreciate all of you. Once again, if you want your opinion heard on the Midwest Football Podcast, email us at at Midwest Football Podcast at gmail.com. In episode three, we're gonna do some deep dives into Midwestern team needs and find what players might be good fits. Until then, it's time for the fifth quarter. See you next week.
1: I miss you already.